Thanks for joining us for the Bread of Life. We are convinced that the Bible is God's holy word, perfect and without error. Its perfection delivers what is good and beneficial for those who hear it and heed it. It is perfect for it leads us to the perfect one, the Lord Jesus. He is the bread of life. Let us seek him together through God's word. Now here's our teacher, Joel Van Hoogen. When you come to the end of your Bible and you've read all that God wants you to know regarding his work to save men from their sins and regarding his judgment on those who remain unsaved from those sins, when you think of the blessing that will belong to the child of God and the cursings that will remain for the child of this world, what then are you to do? What then are you to say with your life? Now, go to Revelation chapter 22, verse 17, and that's where we'll be this morning. Revelation chapter 22, verse 17. Just one passage, one verse. I'll just say something to you before we read it. You know, you'll go to the various commentaries. I collected a number of them uh, and looked at them after I had spent some time studying the text myself. And then that forced me to go back to the text and look at it more closely. Most of the commentators believe that the first half of this verse, that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and the Bride, which is the Church of God, calling upon the Lord Jesus to return to the earth, to come again. And that the second half then turns to a call or invitation for the person who's spiritually thirsty to come to Christ. I don't agree with that view. There's no difference, any significant difference to any, the word come there. It's used three times in this passage. Each time it's in the singular. There's no significant difference between how it's used at the end of the passage verbally than how it's used at the beginning of the passage that would lead me to believe, because you have the same verb, that what we have said at the end of the passage is a fuller expression of the message that's being declared at the beginning of the passage. It's all the same. It's an invitation, a call to people to come to Christ. So here's what we read. The Spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life, and I like the King James here, freely, without price. It's quite clear from our passage in Revelation 22 that what we are reading here when we come to the end of the passage and look at verse 17, that these are the words of the Lord Jesus, that he is making an appropriate application to all that has been written to the church in the book of Revelation. I want you to see, though, and I want you to think, and I think this is right, is to see that this passage in this verse is a practical point of application for all of us who come to the end of this whole book. I don't know if you've ever read your Bible through in a year, or maybe you've done it in less time or more time, and I don't know if you've ever read it chronologically before, so that the very last passage you read is this passage. And you come to the end of it, you've read it all, you've seen And you've begun to understand something of this account that God gives us of his redemptive pursuit of the redemptive history that has gone before to bring us to this point and to bring Christ to us and to bring us to Christ. And you've come to that point and now you think, well, what is is the application? What is it that's supposed to be issuing from my life? What is the responsiveness that I'm to give in light of all that God has done in order to restore man from their sins and bring men and bring people to himself? And I think that the Lord Jesus is telling us the answer in this passage, in this verse. The response to the story of God's mission to redeem the lost and to establish the redeemed in his kingdom 
the response is to offer an invitation to all others to come to him. The book of Revelation is a picture, you have in it a picture of the final judgments that will come upon the human race at the end of the ages as God ties together all of human history. There are actually 15 chapters dedicated to revealing the fulfillment of this history, this judgment of God upon the unregenerate and the wicked aspects and expressions of mankind and upon Satan who has forged and led a revolt against God's will and how God is going to bring that all about and what that's going to look like. And there are 15 chapters filled with you know, apocalyptic language, very descriptive terms, what that's going to be like and what that's going to look like. And then at the very end of this book, there are two chapters in which God begins to unfold before us and express to us the joys and the fulfillment and the glory that He's preparing for those that He will save out of that time and beyond that judgment and those that He will bring to Himself. You know, actually, the question we might ask is, why does God devote 15 chapters to a descriptive expression of the judgment that He's going to bring upon the earth in the final days? 15 chapters and only two chapters to all the glory and all the beauty and all the wonder and all the joy of eternity for those that are going to be drawn to Him. I'm not exactly sure what the answer would be, but I would say this, that I think the terrible nature of God's judgment on the wicked can be somewhat described with words. There's a wide spectrum of words that can be applied to understanding and appreciating and getting into your mind and your understanding the judgment that is facing mankind. But at the same time, the joys and the fulfillment of the glory that God is preparing for those He has saved is beyond words. The words tax out very quickly as God begins to explain them to us because eye has not seen, nor ear has heard, nor has entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those who love Him. Now, the fact is we get to have a little taste of that right now. There are in your lives, you might know this frustration yourself, high points in your spiritual walk with the Lord Jesus that you wish you could tell to somebody else and you can't. The experience is so profound, it's so wonderful, it takes on such a poetic form that you can only describe it in ways that the Bible oftentimes describes it. We're going to look at this passage where Jesus says, if you come to me out of your inmost being will flow rivers of living water. I don't know exactly what that's like. I can't explain that to another individual unless they've experienced it for themselves. It's beyond words to have a rushing river of refreshing life flowing from out the inward source of your being. Jesus says if you come to him and you receive him, that he, he'll come into you and he'll dine within your heart. And again, that tells you it's an experience beyond the expression of words. It's so wonderful and sublime that I don't know how to tell somebody what it's like to have the Lord of all creation eating a feast inside of you and feasting with you in deep, rich, profound communion. And actually, there's no way to communicate it except by using some poetic imagery and then somehow attaching to it your own experience of that reality by the power of His Holy Spirit. 
And then what you do is you give one another a knowing look. You just say, yeah, it's wonderful, it's sweet. There's a limitation to what we can use in terms of words to express all the glory that God is bringing to us. But to a large extent, that's not the case in the judgment He's bringing upon the earth. It can be communicated in prose. It can be communicated in very clear, very graphic information. And when you read, by the way, the words of the book of Revelation, I would caution you not to get, especially when it's speaking of these judgments, not to get too allegorical with it. I would encourage you to think that's about what it's going to look like. That's about what it's going to be like. It's graphic and it's awful and it's before us. And yet when God comes to the end of the book of Revelation and he ties it all together, he ends with the spirit that you'll see if you read through the book of Revelation. He ends with the spirit and the force of his heart and passion through all this. And he ends with a final invite or invitation that issues forth from this book and from all of scripture. Let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take of the water of life freely. So let's just look at that passage first and we'll consider it and then we'll go back and consider the first part of this words that are found in this text. And let's just ask the question, who is it that God is inviting? Who is it that thirst? What is this thirst that's being referred to? Who is this one who is thirsting that is being asked to come? Well, let me give you a description from the word of God as to who it is that finds themselves thirsting. And I would just say it this way. The person who discovers his or her basic unrighteousness before God, thirst. The person who discovers his or her basic unrighteousness before God finds themselves thirsty. You'll read in Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 6, the beginning of the Beatitudes. There the Lord Jesus pronounces different individuals who he considers to be blessed. It starts out with, Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. If you consider that passage, you have to understand first that Jesus is saying the person who's blessed is not the person who's hungering and thirsting for blessing. The person who's blessed is not the one who's hungering and thirsting for happiness. The person who is blessed is the one, the person that he's calling is the one who's hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And also, if you look at the passage, you'll see that there's a progression that's expressed in the one who's being blessed here. They're actually on a downward trend. They start off by being poor in spirit. That is, they feel their spiritual and moral impoverishment, and they're blessed for that. And then also, from that sense of deep impoverishment, they mourn their condition. They mourn, and they're blessed for mourning their condition. They should. It shows that their heart is being awakened to a spiritual need in their life and a spiritual reality from which they can respond properly and appropriately to God. Having then mourned their bankruptcy, their spiritual bankruptcy, they lose every argument they have for their own position and their own condition. They lose any defense they have for their current state, and so they're meek. They're without argument. Here's the person. He, he sees that he's spiritually impoverished and poor. He mourns his spiritual moral impoverishment. 
He has no argument for himself anymore. He's left only with one thing. He's left longing and desiring for something that he does not possess. Something that will turn around his current state, his spiritual state. He longs and he hungers for righteousness. What's righteousness in this case? What's that referring to? Well, righteousness has a negative and a positive position, this longing for righteousness. It has a negative and a positive nature. And negatively, the thirst for righteousness is a desire to be free from sin in all its forms and all of its manifestations. It's a desire to be rid of sin. It's a desire to be rid of its power and its taint. It's a desire to be free from the enslaving desires that sin roils up within you. Positively, this longing for righteousness is not simply a desire to be free from what defiles, but it's also a desire to be undefiled. It's a desire to be holy. It's a desire and longing to be good. It's a desire to have a goodness that brings you in proximity to a good God. It's a desire to be like God so that you can be with God. Positively, it's this. It's a desire to know God and be in fellowship with Him, to walk with Him, to be in relationship with Him. The one who thirsts is the person who realizes that their unrighteousness causes them to be estranged from God and wants to be made right with God. Thanks for joining us today. You've been listening to The Bread of Life, a ministry of the Bread of Life Fellowship in Boise, Idaho. For a copy of this broadcast, just call us at 208-331-4096. Until the next time, God bless you.